This evening I invite you to turn, first of all, to the Belgic Confession, one of our confessions that we hold to as a Reformed church. You'll find that on page 154 in the Book of Forms and Prayers, and 855 in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal. I want to read two articles. The first is Article 3, regarding the Word of God, and then Article 5, the authority of the Scripture. We confess that this Word of God was not sent nor delivered by the will of men, but that holy men of God spoke, being moved by the Holy Spirit, as Peter says. Afterwards, our God, because of the special care He has for us and our salvation, commanded His servants, the prophets and apostles, to commit this revealed word to writing. He Himself wrote with His own finger the two tables of the law. Therefore, we call such writings holy and divine scriptures." And then if you just turn to Article 5, the authority of Scripture. We receive all these books, those are the books that were listed in Article 4, what we have in our Scriptures. We receive all these books and these only as holy and canonical for the regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith. And we believe without a doubt all things contained in them, not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but above all, because the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from God, and also because they prove themselves to be from God. For even the blind themselves are able to see that the things predicted in them do happen." And then if you turn to the Word of God to 1 Peter 2, sorry, 2 Peter 2, I'll pick up the reading in verse 12 of chapter 1, 2 Peter 2, sorry, 2 Peter 1, verse 12, to the end of the chapter. There in verse 12, Peter writes, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, and when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. 
for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do, will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's God's Word. Children, if I were to ask you who wrote the Bible, I'm sure most of you would say, God did. But if that's true, if God wrote the Bible, why then did I say we're going to pick up reading where Peter writes in 2 Peter 1 verse 12? Well, you say, that's because Peter wrote 2 Peter 1, beginning at verse 12 to 21. But I thought you said that God wrote the Bible. Well, yes, God did write the Bible. But, but man had a role to play in it as well, you say, so that Peter wrote Peter, and Paul wrote Romans, and Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, but, but it's all the Word of God. It can be a bit of a perplexing question and can tie you into knots if you really allow it to, but it does point us to one of the most important works of the Holy Spirit of God. Over the past number of weeks, we've been looking at the great epochal event in the history of the church, uh, the great day of Pentecost, when the ascended Christ poured out upon His church the coronation gift of the Holy Spirit. And we looked at what the significance of the day of Pentecost was, and, and what a privilege it is for us to now have the Spirit of the ascended Christ. But we wouldn't want you to think that the Holy Spirit only began His work some 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost. No, the Scripture tells us something different. The Spirit of God was already at work before creation, or at creation, we read in Genesis 1, verse 2, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters of the deep. And we know from the Old Testament Scripture that the Spirit was at work as He led the people of Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. The Holy Spirit is the one who came upon the judges and the kings and the priests and the prophets and enabled and empowered them to do their work. And it was the Holy Spirit of God who who worked in the hearts of God's elect in the Old Testament Scriptures so that they could believe in the promised Messiah to the saving of their souls. So the Spirit was at work all throughout history because He is the eternal Spirit of God. And the particular work of the Holy Spirit that I want us to focus on this evening is the work of the Holy Spirit in the inspiration and in the illumination of the Holy Scriptures. And those will be the two headings of the sermon, the inspiration and the illumination of the Holy Scriptures. And I want to take uh, this passage in 2 Peter 1 
as the port from which we sail. The Apostle Peter in this letter to the saints is encouraging them in the Christian life. He's telling them what sorts of graces they ought to pursue and add to their faith, virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. And he reminds them that if they have these qualities in addition to faith, this will make them fruitful as Christians. And not only that, but they will receive a a warm and hearty welcome into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these things are important. They're essential for the Christian faith. And so Peter says, I'm here to always remind you of these things. As long as I'm alive, he says, as long as I'm in this tent, speaking about his body, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remind you of the importance of these things. I'm going to stir you up in these things. And not only that, he says, I make a commitment that after my camping trip is finished and I go into my eternal glory and put off this body, I will make sure that you will even be able to recall these things then. And of course, what, what Peter is referring to is, is the writing of the Scriptures. It's fine for him to, to say these things face to face, but what happens when he dies and is gone? They can't hear him any longer. But, but if he were to write these things down then even after he's gone, they can reread what he has written. And that's the very thing that he has done. It's through the writing of this letter that Peter is encouraging these saints about what is so important and essential in the Christian life so that they might know the rich grace of God for all eternity. And Peter is, of course, well qualified to be the instrument of refreshing and reminding these believers. He was there from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He was an eyewitness, he says, of Jesus' majesty. He made known the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So so he was there, and he heard what Jesus had taught. And he was there experiencing the miracles that Jesus did, all of which gave evidence to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God who became man and was sent to earth to live and to die in order that sinners might be brought to heaven and into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, I was there. I saw it all. What I'm telling you is not something I've made up. They're not myths, but I was an eyewitness of His majesty. I was there. And not only that, he says, But I was there at that marvelous moment on the Mount of Transfiguration when the Lord Jesus took me and James and John with him, and when there was this cloud that enveloped them, and we met with Moses and Elijah on the Mount, and and we were there when we heard that voice, the voice of the Father, which was born to him by majestic glory. And we heard the voice say, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We were there on that holy mountain. And so you can trust what we say. I'm not pulling your leg. I'm not making this up. We were there. And then Peter segues into something that is even more sure and certain than his 
eyewitness testimony. Notice what he says in verse 19 of chapter 1. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And so what Peter is referring there to is the Holy Scriptures of God. We have the prophetic writings. And because they're writings that is written down, they are of such value. They're even more valuable than just eyewitness testimony because God has taken special care with His revelation and commanded His servants to commit this revealed Word to writing. It is the written Scriptures of God that is the deposit of what we are to believe and how we are to live. And of course, when, when Peter here is talking about the prophetic writings, the prophecy of Scripture, he is undoubtedly speaking about the Old Testament Scriptures. What we find in our Bibles from Genesis to Malachi, or in the Hebrew Bible from Genesis to 2 Chronicles, they follow a different order. But that's what he's referring to, the Old Testament Scriptures. But, but the interesting thing is, is that Peter doesn't just refer to the Old Testament Scriptures as if there's nothing like them at all. In fact, if you go over to 2 Peter 3, you'll see that he links together the Old Testament Scriptures, the prophetic writings, with the apostolic teaching. 2 Peter 3, verse 1, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, that's the Old Testament, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, that's the Gospels, and what would become the New Testament writings. He links them together. He's not saying that one is more important than the other, not that the, the Old Testament Scriptures have a higher value than, than the commands of our Lord Jesus through the Holy Apostles. No, they are on equal standing. You can see this as well at the end of the letter in verses 15 and 16 of 2 Peter 3, where Peter says, "...and count the patience of our Lord as salvation." just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them, that is, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Now, here's the important point. As they do the other Scriptures. So Peter is equating the writings of the Apostle Paul that have difficult parts in them. He's equating them with the other Scriptures. He doesn't say, you know, people twist Paul's writings, and they twist the Bible as well. No, he says they twist Paul's writings as they twist other Scriptures, thereby saying that Paul's writings are Scriptures along with the Old Testament Scriptures of God. This comes out in a neat way in Paul's letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, 
verse 18, where the Apostle Paul quotes the Scripture. And notice what he says there, 1 Timothy 5, verse 18, for the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, the first phrase, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, is a quotation from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, the prophetic writings, the Old Testament Scriptures. But here's where it's interesting. The second phrase, the laborer deserves his wages, is a quote not from the Old Testament Scriptures, but is a quote from the New Testament Scriptures, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 7, where the Lord Jesus instructs His disciples what they ought to do when they go from place to place. All that to say is that Paul puts on the top of these two quotes, for the Scripture says, the one coming from Deuteronomy 25, the other one from Luke 10, verse 7. And so in the New Testament, understanding of the Bible, it is not just the Old Testament Scriptures that are the words of God, but the apostolic writings are also authoritative Scripture. They also constitute the Word of God. So what does Paul say, or sorry, what does Peter say then about Scripture? Notice in verse 20 that he says something negatively first. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So that the Scriptures, though they are written by men, as we'll come to see, the Scriptures are written by men, but men do not make it up. This is not cleverly devised myths by some competent authors. They didn't, as the Dutch would say, suck it out of their own thumb. They didn't make it up in any way. This is what Calvin says. They didn't blab their inventions of their own accord or according to their own judgments. The Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, are are not man-made prophecies. This was a problem in the Old Testament that some people would make up their own things and say, this is what the Lord says. This is what you read in, in Jeremiah 23, where Jeremiah speaks about the false prophets. Listen to this. I have heard what the prophets, this is what the Lord says, I've heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forget my name for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. You see the contrast. There are some who speak of their own imagination. They have a dream, they say. This is the word of the Lord, they say. And uh, the Lord says, no, that's not my word. Those are just 
human words, made up human inventions. But if you have my word, then you want to speak my word faithfully. So that's what Peter says the first thing, negatively, that the Holy Scriptures, whether Old Testament or biological reasoning, the New Testament Scriptures, they're not something that man has come up with themselves. No prophecy was ever produced, he says in verse 21, by the will of man. Then what does he say positively? So we know that the Scriptures are not coming from man, their own inventions. Well, then how do we have the the Scriptures? Well, he goes on to say that in verse 21. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God. How? As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that what we have in the Scriptures is the words of God. They didn't make it up themselves. They got it from God as they were carried along. And the word that he uses is for carried along is actually a maritime metaphor. It's like you have a, a, a ship with sails, and then the wind fi- fills the sails, and it brings it to its destination. Well, this is what happened with these men. They were men who wrote the Scriptures, but the Holy Spirit of God filled their sails so that the words that they wrote were the very things that the Holy Spirit wanted them to write. So that, uh, positively speaking, the Scriptures have come to us as men spoke from God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean in terms of the Bible that we have? Well, it does mean that it's legitimate to say that Peter says in 2 Peter 1 verse 12, or the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 5 verse 18, or the prophet Jeremiah says this, or Isaiah prophesied about uh, the coming of the Messiah. You can say all those things because it is true that holy men did write the Scriptures. But you shouldn't think that they wrote the Scriptures as if they were just robots or typewriters for those who are old enough to remember what those things are, or keyboards, as if they just sat there at their keyboard and they heard the words come in and the words just went through them and they typed it out or printed it out on the scroll. That's not how it happened. These men were active in the writing of Scripture. They thought about things They reflected on things. They rolled rolled it around in their minds. They discussed it with other people. Remember how how Luke says in in, in the beginning of Luke's gospel how, how he did research into the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these men were actively engaged in the writing of Scripture. They weren't like our phones, you know, how you can speak to your phone and it converts it to text. That's not how the Scriptures were written, as if the men were just computers who had no engagement with the subject matter. No, they were engaged, heart and soul and life, in the writing of the Scripture. But the Holy Spirit of God so filled them and directed them that what Paul and Peter and Jeremiah and Moses and Isaiah and David wrote were the precise words 
that the Holy Spirit wanted them to write. See, God, of course, knew from all eternity what the Scriptures were going to look like, what words were going to be included, what was going to be said, what was not going to be said. And in His sovereign providence, He shaped individuals by their history, by their learning, by their character and personality, so that when these individuals sat down to write letters or to write prophecies or to write narratives, they wrote the very thing that God intended them to write. That's why, for instance, you, if I were to read you a passage and not tell you where it's from, you could guess that that sounds like Paul because it's so logical. It's not at all like, like Mark, who, who has a, a load of immediately's in his, in his gospel because he just keeps on moving so rapidly through the lives, the details of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are, are different men who wrote it and different characters as well. God used their personalities, their training, their character, their skill, their intellect, their abilities. He used them to write the Scripture so that the very words they wrote are the words that God intended them to write. And so what that means very basically is that what the Bible says, God says. And what Paul says, God says. And what Peter writes, God writes. So that what we have in our Bibles, at least in the original manuscripts, of course, because there are sometimes complications because of translation, but in the original manuscripts that these men wrote from old to new, from Genesis to Revelation, we have the very words of God. Now, of course, that has all kinds of implications for us. It means in the first place that this is the authority for our lives. I mean, what are you going to say to God? I know what you said, but I'm not going to listen to you. Of course you're not going to do that. You're going to bow before the authority of the Scripture. This is going to be our rule for life. We're going to strive with all that is in us to, to, to conform our lives to it, not it to our lives. It means that this is our authority. And it means as well that the Bible is absolutely without error. That's not commonly believed by many, in the liberal for sure not, but sometimes even in the evangelical church. And this is actually where you often see a church begin its decline when it says that there are errors in the Bible. There are no errors in the Bible. Because if they were, that would reflect on the author, the primary author, who is God. And God never lies. His Word is purified seven times. It is without error in all things. And because of the authority of the Word of God, because of the inerrancy, the truth of the Word of God, Peter says, we do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, that our lives ought to be saturated with the Scripture because this is the only lamp we have in the world of darkness. Until that day when Christ returns in glory, when 
when the day dawns and the morning star rises, then we will discard the Scriptures because we will see our Lord Jesus Christ face to face. But until that day, we submit to this Scripture. And more than that, because it is the very words of God, we love the Bible. We adore it. We are thankful for it. And we order our lives in accordance to it. The Holy Spirit has inspired the Scriptures so that what we have, though written by various men over hundreds of years, what we have is the very Word of God. I don't know if you caught that this evening. I said we're going to read what Peter writes. And at the end of my reading, I said this is the Word of God. Peter wrote it but it's God's Word. God's the primary author. Peter was the secondary author. But the Holy Spirit does more than that. I mean, this is a marvelous thing, because if the only knowledge we had of God was from general revelation, we we would be a sorry people. We would be languishing in our sins, lost eternally, because we wouldn't know the way to redemption. I mean, the revelation of God in, in creation is enough to reveal God to the degree that it will condemn us. But it can never bring us to salvation because it doesn't tell us of the mercy and grace of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. So the Scriptures are a wonderful gift to us by the Holy Spirit of God. But it's insufficient in and of itself. And so the Holy Spirit does more than just give us the Scriptures The Holy Spirit also illuminates the Scriptures or illuminates our minds so that we receive the Scriptures, understand them, and believe them. There's a wonderful story in in the book of Acts about uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. You know how he had come to Jerusalem to worship God, and now he was on his way back to Ethiopia. And he's in his chariot, and he's reading the gospel of Isaiah, particularly Isaiah 53, this wonderful passage that speaks about the the death, the suffering of our Lord Jesus. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? I mean, we read that. We say, yeah, absolutely, that's our Lord Jesus, a lamb to the slaughter. It's a wonderful picture of our Savior, a wonderful prophecy of his substitutionary work on our behalf. But the eunuch didn't know that. And he says to Philip, he says, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Like, who is this one who is led to the slaughter? Who is this person? And then Peter, sorry, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this Scripture, he told the eunuch the good news about Jesus. That's wonderful. Without Philip, the eunuch would have remained in ignorance and in darkness and therefore in bondage. But what is so fascinating is how did Philip know to go up to the chariot? Well, we read that, verse 29, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over 
and join this chariot. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to raise up pastors and teachers in the church, to open up the Scriptures, to explain the truth of the Word of God as it's embedded in these sacred pages. It's a gift to the church, a gift of the Holy Spirit. I mean, Christ ascends to heaven, and He sends down His Spirit, and the Spirit works in the hearts of men, convicting them, bringing them to the Lord Jesus, but also placing upon them a burden to study the Word, to obey it, and then to teach it to His people. And so the Spirit is needed to open up the Scriptures, but even that is insufficient. The Spirit of God is also necessary to help us to understand the Scriptures in a believing way so that we embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. It might be hard for you to imagine not having the Holy Spirit of God as you read the Scriptures, but there are people who can remember that. Before they became Christians, they would read the Scriptures, and it wouldn't make any sense to them. I mean, they could understand the stories and the details, but, but the picture of who they were and who God was, it, it just didn't click. It, they just had no understanding. Until one day, all of a sudden, it seemed like the light went on, and they said, aha, I get it now. Now, why was that? Was it because their, their teacher was particularly competent that day, or he He had a neat twist on things that just made it clear. No, not only that. Perhaps that was part of the contribution, but not only that. It was rather that the Holy Spirit of God opened the eyes of that person so that they began to understand and see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, His Son. So the Apostle Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 2. You remember how he starts that chapter by saying that he decided to know nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and Him crucified? So he preached the gospel, the gospel of a crucified Savior for sinners. It says, but that wasn't sufficient. He could preach all day and all night. But that wouldn't change anyone unless the Spirit of God was at work in his hearers. Because without the Spirit of God, the gospel makes no sense. This is is what Paul says. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That is, you can only understand the Scriptures as it teaches Christ. When the Spirit of God works in your heart and opens your eyes and opens your ears and opens your heart, it is a work of the Spirit to give you insight and understanding of the Word of God. Why is that? Well, because... Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of the person within, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And Paul says to these Christians who have believed, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, 
that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So the Spirit gives us the Scriptures by inspiration so that we have the very words of the living God in our hands. And then the Spirit sends preachers, raises up pastors and teachers to teach His Word. And then the Spirit of God works in the hearts of His people, takes the scales from their eyes so that when they read the Scriptures, they see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not our competency, either in teaching or in understanding. The brightest minds in the world have struggles with understanding the Scriptures that the least educated in the world can easily grasp. And the difference is the work of the Holy Spirit of God. What we owe to the Holy Spirit, I, I'm thinking that, that we don't often treasure the Holy Spirit as much as we ought to. We love God the Father. We rejoice in God the Son, but it has been said in theology that the Spirit is often the, the forgotten person of the Trinity, the neglected one. But what do we owe to the Spirit of God? Without the Holy Spirit, we'd have no Scriptures opening into us the, the wonder of the grace of God and Jesus Christ who desires to make friends with sinners. Without the Spirit of God, we would have none to lead us in the green pastures of His Word. And without the Spirit of God, even if we are led into the green pastures of His Word, we would never grasp all that God has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. It was Samuel Rutherford who said, I don't know which persons of the Holy Trinity I love the most, but I know I need them all. And reflecting on the work of the Holy Spirit in giving us the Scriptures, doesn't it just warm your heart to Him and give you grateful joy for His sovereign, saving work in your life? Because through Him, you have come to know Christ, whom to know is life evermore. Let us pray. We bless you, our great God. We thank you that the Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son to do His great work of inspiring the Scriptures so that we have the very words of the living God. We thank you for the work of the Spirit in our lives, how He has brought us under the hearing of the preaching of the Word, and how He has brought us to understand the Holy Scriptures and the revelation of God's grace in the Lord Jesus. And we pray, our God, that we would cherish the Spirit, that we would pray for His rich work amongst us, that we would do nothing to grieve Him or to resist Him or to quench Him in any way, but that He would have full reign helping us to understand, enlightening our minds so that we understand all that You have revealed to us in Your Word. We pray for those who are still in darkness and ask that You would be gracious to them, that You would pour out Your Spirit upon them so that they might come to the light, that they might know Jesus Christ in all of His transcendent glory 
and goodness. We pray, our God, that you would go with us in this coming week as we leave from this place. It has been a delight and joy to be together in the house of our God under the ministry of your word and the fellowship of the saints, to lift up our hearts and voices in the praise of our God, to to know that our Lord Jesus was present amongst us, speaking to us, encouraging, convicting, rebuking, refreshing. And we pray that as we leave this place and go to our schools or our homes or our workplaces, that it would be evident to those around us that we have been with the Lord Jesus this day, that we have gained some new insight into Him, that our hearts have been warmed by His fellowship. And we pray that You might give us words to speak so that we might tell others of our Lord Jesus Christ and live a life that is different from the world so that we might testify to Your saving grace. We pray that we would be men and women and boys and girls who love the Word, who honor it as the Word of the living God, that we would not neglect it, that we would read it and study it and lay it up in our hearts, practice it in our lives, until that day dawns and the morning star appears when Christ is revealed in glory at His second coming. Hear us, our God, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let us sing in response to this hymn number 170, God in the Gospel.